We, uh, we will be reading this morning from Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. After that, we'll be in Revelation chapter 9, if you want to stick your finger there. And at some point, if we have the time, I hope to briefly look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you'd like to stick your finger there, you may as well. Joel chapter 1, when Reverend Smith asked me what I wanted to do, I said I wanted to do the book of Joel, not only because I had the privilege to write a paper on chapter 2, where he prophesied the outpouring of the Spirit in my final weeks at seminary several weeks ago, but also because I, I, I think that prophetical books are quite scary. They can be quite scary. You open them up and you start reading all of these miraculous things, these wonderfully crafted metaphors, and you think to yourself, well, what in the world is going on here? And I thought, if I think that, then other people think that, and I sure want to know more about what this book is about and what it means, because it's very important for the Christian church and very important and encouraging for the people of God. So we're going to consider it uh, in its entirety, hopefully by the end of next year. So Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awaken, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it's, it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and the apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. Now we'll turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. You may want to keep your finger here as well, or stick a, a piece of paper to keep your spot. We'll come to, back to this later on. And the fifth angel drew, blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened in the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, 
And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of scorpions when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, pray to God and ask his blessing on this time. Father in heaven, uh, you do promise to be with us when we gather in your name. You do promise to bless us by the teaching of your word, and so we ask that blessing now. We ask that, that you would encourage the hearts of your people, people through this teaching, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would turn us from our hardness of hearts and lead us to glory in the cross of Christ and in your covenant faithfulness. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a rather obscure test, text, text with uh, lots of big questions, I think. Is what Joel describes in this text just a thick cloud of dark locusts that blots out the face of the sun? What is the prophet Joel doing here? What did it mean for him and his audience? Where's Jesus in this text, and what does it mean for the church? Well, as we ask these questions, Joel, in the whole of this book, and most particularly here, is addressing, I think, one essential Problem, and it's a theme that will ring true throughout. Cult gone wrong. There is a worship crisis in the book of Joel that he hopes to address. The worship of the triune God has been perverted. It's been exchanged for a lie. It's been exchanged for a mechanical form of religion, or it's been exchanged for other forms of religion, or just entirely abandoned. And Joel wants to address this. In fact, Joel is extremely concerned with this. And his point is, especially in these first 12 verses, is that judgment has come upon them for this crisis of worship. For the prophet here, this worship crisis and faithlessness of the people of Judah is epitomized by the fact that it isn't just a thick cloud of locusts that blots out the face of the sun, but God's very own judgment that he has brought upon them, not only because of their faithlessness, but because of their own ignorance up to this point. He is illuminating this destruction for them because they've been blind to it. And so Joel comes on to the scene and he exposes, as one Reformed father puts it, the stupidity of the people. He exposes the stupidity of the people who have become so entrenched in their sin and in their callousness that they do not only miss the calamity of this calamity before them, 
but they fail to recognize it for the judgment as it is, coming from the hand of God for their faithlessness. They fail to recognize that this is their just deserts within the context of the Mosaic Covenant and the oaths that they, had, they and their fathers had sworn. And so ultimately what we learn then from this text today is that, it, again, it isn't just a thick cloud of locust, but it is indeed God's judgment upon Judah, the description of which points not only to their faithfulness as a faithlessness as a kingdom of priests, but also to God's commitment to his covenant promises in the midst of this. It points ultimately, despite the focus on the ultimate calamity and destruction, to the faithfulness of the triune God and his commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So to look at this, I want to look at maybe, I want to call three different scopes or spheres. They're not necessarily points. We're going to start with a snapshot of the text and we're going to walk through the imagery and the way it's presented to us. Then we're going to look at the purpose of the text in the hand of Joel. And then we're going to look at the significance of this text. What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? What did it mean for the New Testament church? So snapshot, then the purpose, and then the significance. So first, the snapshot of the text. Uh, This text is broken up into two major parts. The first is verse 2 to 4. And then the second is verses three through, or 5 through 12. And that second section is broken up into three subsections, which will handle, handle each in their own term. Uh, verse 5 through 7, verse 8 through 10, and verse 11 through 12. As we do so, as we engage with this text, it's important for us to locate Joel within the history of Israel, since he himself does not tell us when he is operating in his capacity as a prophet. All we have is his name and his father. doesn't tell us the kings that he serves under. And the most that we can do is look into the various details in the text that might hint at various events in the history of Israel. Now, this gets quite tricky, and so scholars debate back and forth, and it's an endless nightmare to sift through, and I don't, I don't want to take up your time with that, and it's, 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 a, it's a mind-boggling to sift through anyways. So, I'm going to tell you my conclusion and the primary factor that led me to that conclusion. Joel is writing in between 700 and 588 BC. Uh, this is a wide range, of course, but the reason that we're choosing these, these dates is threefold. First, uh, is that it allows for Judah to still be in, Israel, in the land of Judah, apart from exile. They haven't gone into exile yet. The temple is still standing. And third, there are three dates in particular within that range that fit as uh, suitable for the events that are potentially being described within this book. That would be 700 B.C. when the Assyrians invade Judah, or 598 B.C. when Babylon uh, invades the first time, or 588 B.C. just before Israel goes into, Judah goes into exile in 587. And this is the date that we'll keep running forward. So the important thing that we want to keep in mind here is that Judah is in the land of promise. The temple is still standing. Now, one of the the primary clue, the the primary reason that I've chosen that or I've gone with that is because the overall nature of prophetic ministry, especially in the early period, is that it has a very primary focus on repentance. Repentance. Whereas in the later prophets, after they've gone into exile, 
there is no time for repentance. It's just a description of the judgment and an interpretation of it. And in Joel, there is a very heavy focus and movement uh, calling the people unto repentance. So let's look with that said at verse 2 through 4. There he writes, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your day or in the days of your fathers? So here there is a dole command that demands the full attention of everybody from the oldest of them to the youngest. It's essentially implying who's listening. Everybody is demanded to listen who has a corporate memory, any kind of memory of the events that Joel is going to go on and describe. And he asks a rhetorical question in this way. He says, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? And the expected answer is, of course... No. We have never seen anything like this before. He goes on in verse 3. Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. In other words, what you all are calling to mind that everybody has a memory of, you are to pass on and on and on. And so it sets what Joel is saying in a covenantal context because God is the God to us and to our children after us. And in, and, and in the same language with which he describes after he brings Israel out of, exi- out of slavery in Egypt, where he says there to them, you shall teach it to your children, and you shall teach it to them diligently, Joel says here, you shall teach it to your children, and to the generation after them, and the generation after them. You cannot forget the event that I'm about to describe. And then he hits it in verse 4. Now, it's notable here that he puts off verse 4. You notice he's, he's described, hear this. Has such a thing happened? Tell of it to your children. So he's really laying suspense and, and, and drawing out the emotion of the people as he's, as he's addressing them. What is this event? There's a moment of dramatic irony. It's as if he's implying they know what it is. What the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Uh, this is another uh, one of those places in this book where there is a substantial amount of scholarly discussion about what this means. Uh, some suggest that the various locusts mentioned here in the Hebrew point to, point to the various stages at which uh, a locust develops from its larvae form into its fully developed flying buzzing form, Um, and others simply describe what you see here represented in the ESV, where it's various kinds of locusts that do various kinds of things. I don't think that that's important when we're trying to interpret what this text is saying. What's important is, within Hebrew poetry, there is this heightening effect that it goes from one thing to another to another to another to really draw out the drama of what's being described. This is complete and total grasshopper invasion. There's no escape. Whether it's different kinds of locusts or whether or not it's uh, the development of a locust from its larvae form to its fully developed form, it doesn't matter. When locusts invade, there is no escape. And the way that this works is that initially there there will be a large... Uh, burst of locust population, they begin to feed. What they leave behind falls to the ground where they've laid larvae, where they laid eggs. 
The fully grown, mature adults then move on to a new region. The larvae develop. They eat the, the, the vegetation that's left on the ground. They develop and they fly to a new location and they leave larvae elsewhere. And so the proliferation, the expansion of these locusts is on a catastrophic level. It can't be measured. They consume everything, so much so that because of how numerous they are, they can be described like a thick cloud that blots out the sun and blots out the horizon. Now, this is a rather unfamiliar image to us, and so I did some research on this. In the 1980s, there was a locust swarm in Africa that affected 20 different countries and spanned 2.4 million acres. The LA Times wrote an article on this. There was national, international relief sent to Africa to spray pesticide and, and various different things to kill the locust. And they found in areas where the pesticide wasn't sprayed that per square yard there were a thousand locusts. That is an insane number. And this doesn't happen over a short period of time either. It happens over several months. And so the writer of this article in the LA Times uh, commented, one female grasshopper that lays eggs in June may have 18 million living descendants by October that travel hundreds of miles devouring everything. The last major locust plague the U.S. had was called Albert's Swarm. It was in the late 1880s. It was estimated that 12.5 million locusts covered 198,000 square miles across the western United States. That's bigger than the state of California. That is complete and total devastation. It would destroy everything. And remember, we're talking about the ancient world. They don't have refrigerators. They ain't got no canned goods. They don't have pesticides to keep locusts off their properties. Their entire lives depended on agriculture. Everything in the ancient Near East economy depended on agriculture. It was everything to them. And without this, there's not just, there's, there's not just no food, there's widespread death. In 300 BC, there was a plague recorded that swept across China, a locust plague, and it was reported that 90% of the population died. And it's not just the destruction they directly cause these locusts by eating all the food. The older locusts die off, they fall to the ground, and what does that bring? Flies, fleas, rats, stench, poisons the water. You have no food to feed the animals. They die off if you don't kill them quick enough. This is just total and utter devastation. It would destroy entire uh, nations. So Joel's point at, at this, in, in, in writing this is, yeah, the likes of this haven't been seen. You'd better listen. Everybody had better listen. And you'd better pass this on. Because I'm going to tell you what it means. And I'm going to tell you why it's come. And that's what then he moves to do in the next three sections. As it, and as he does so, he addresses three different groups, each time not only to draw out the extent of the devastation, but I'd reason the reason for it. 
And this is a noteworthy assumption that should be made. Now, I have to, I have to divulge here that not, not all commentators reach this conclusion that he's, he's calling out different groups. But there is one in particular who I'm relying on uh, that, I, that I think I agree with. And the reason for it, this is that the assumption should be made that this just isn't a willy-nilly locust plague. God is Lord over all of creation. That's what Joel means. Joel, the Lord is God. And he is the one who controls the nations. He is the one who sends locust swarms. And he does so particularly on a faithless people. So verse 5 to 7, there he calls out, Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. So this call to awake is a call to those in drunken stupor, those who are so, uh, so obsessed with and so desirous of the pleasures and the, the dullness or, or numbing of, of life and the pursuit of euphoric joy that they are consistently found to be in a drunken stupor. They are known as drunkards. And he calls to them, weep and wail. Now, I find it interesting that this is what Joel says because he says that it's also been cut off from their mouth. If there's been a famine caused by locusts, is there any wine to drink? No. So the indication here is that it's not just that they were, they were once in a perpetual state of drunkenness, but that their own identity is consumed by a a framework of drunken behavior. They are those who are slothful. They are those who are comfortable and unbothered by the happenings of life, by the fact that widespread devastation has occurred. They carry on in their pleasures with little concern for the state of things, and they commit cultic sins, sins against the temple, sins against God by continuing in their irresponsibility and in their drunken demeanor in life. And so there's an irony. If you're the culprit, you've also taken away from yourself the very thing that you crave the most. And he calls out to them, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and its fangs a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Here, uh, there is a possible allusion to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38 is a, a chapter that describes the, uh, the pretender to the throne that comes from the north named Gog and Magog who assemble all of their armies to come up against the, the, the company of the Lord, against my country. And there they are described like a lioness with sharp teeth coming up to take the throne of the Lord or pretending to be the true claimant to the throne. And so Joel says, at least portrays either a real nation coming to, do, to, coming to do this, or portrays the current locust plague that he's calling to their memory, like a nation that's rising up against them in battle to sweep across the land like a lion who, who's sunk her teeth into her prey. And there is no escaping a lion who's sunk its teeth into its prey. There is no stopping that lion from consuming the carcass. And he says, it's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. 
So, so devastating is the destruction of this locust army. So widespread, so effective, that even the bark of the fig trees and the vines has been stripped off so that what was once a luscious green garden or vineyard is now only white. He moves on in verse 8 to 10. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Most commentators will argue that verse 7 is a reference to the whole of Israel, the virgin daughter of Zion, made reference to often in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and elsewhere in like Lamentations or the Psalms. Uh, that is a possible interpretation of verse 8. I'm of the opinion, however, that verse 8 is actually predicating something about verse 9 here. That the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. It is the priests who are guilty, not the virgin daughter of Zion, a reference to Jerusalem and the city of the Lord. It is the priests themselves as the center of, uh, of Joel's indictment here. They have exchanged true worship for a mere, at the very least, mechanical religion, and they have failed to institute proper worship, or they've completely perverted the whole thing. And so they have an appearance of fidelity and external obedience because they still do these offerings, these drink and grain offerings, but they don't care about true piety. Joel is being ironic here. Irony seeps in the pages of this text. The drink and the grain offering were offered twice daily along with the meat offering. The drink offering would be poured over the meat offering so that it would make a sweet aroma going up to the Lord. The grain offering or the wheat offering would be a, a, a loaf of bread that was baked with oil and frankincense and then half of which was burned as a sweet aroma that would ascend to the Lord and the other half along with the meat offering and the wine that had been poured on it, was given to whom? The priests. So the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, the grain is destroyed, and the wine dries up and the oil languishes. What's he telling us? There's nothing left to sacrifice. There's no grain there's no wine, there's no oil to bake into the bread. They have nothing. Not, not just to sacrifice to the Lord, but also nothing to eat. And this is really symbolic for the fact that they themselves as a nation are not sweet and pleasing to the Lord. Now I think essential for interpreting this is, is verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing a sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now the imagery here is relying especially on the ancient Near Eastern practice of marriage. You would have been betrothed, a, a, a young bride would be betrothed often, oftentimes from a very young age, even, as some studies indicate, before they were born. To a bridegroom she would be betrothed. And over the years, they would get to know one another, and the excitement leading up to this day would be akin to our own excitement. And you see the descriptions of this in Scripture. The excitement of the wedding day. 
clad in robes of white. In Psalm 45, it describes her decked out in jewelry and frankincense and, and various, uh, various aromas. And in, in Song of Songs, you find her excitement as she, as she expresses her joy to go and meet her beloved at the altar. This is the kind of excitement that is indicated by this, by this verse. A bride, a bride waiting to see her bridegroom, and in the blink of an eye, he's gone. She would wail. But it's a monstrous thing to think of a bride who has lost her bridegroom when young, refraining from mourning. Why does she have to be commanded to mourn? It's an indictment on the priests. They mourn for the wrong reason. They mourn because they have nothing to eat. because they've perverted true worship in the temple. Instead, they're like, they're like those who have, they're like a bride that has to be commanded on the, at the death of her bridegroom to mourn her, mourn her passing, mourn his passing, and to put on this sacerdotal symbol of mourning, the sackcloth. And finally, verse 11 and 12, the third group. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest, the harvest of the field has perished. So here he calls out to the third group. He's addressed first uh, the, the drunkards, then he's addressed the priests, and now he's addressing the farmers, those who deal with the agriculture. Why should they be called out to lament when their own crops and their own livelihoods are destroyed? Because they've been ignorant. They're unbothered. And why are they guilty? One theory would be that common in the ancient Near East, when it, um, the most common form of idolatry in the ancient Near East was agricultural idolatry. You would pray to the gods like Baal, the god of thunder and rain, in order to get rain for your harvest, rain for your crops. These are the guilty ones for their pagan idolatry. They've gone after other gods seeking their reign, seeking their provision rather than the one true God, Joel. The Lord is God. He's the one in control of all things. And what does he indicate here? The wheat and the barley? The wheat and the barley in the ancient Near East especially is the food of the poor. So it's not just the fancy oil and the fancy, fancy flour that the rich people can afford that is dried up that the, he describes with the priests. It's the food of the poor. The sacrifices of the poor. They're all gone. Everything's gone. There's nothing left. The harvest of the field has perished. And then he goes on. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. There is nothing exempt from the devastation that this locust has brought upon the land. They have consumed every last drop. And what's the response? The, the, the gladness of men dries up. So the celebration festivals surrounding the agricultural life of Israel and Judah, the Feast of Pentecost, 
the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Tabernacles, which were supposed to be times of radiant joy throughout the land, that's dried up too. Now this leads us to the purpose of the text. What is Joel doing? What does this mean? What's the image that he's painting? Well, he's really painting Israel, I think, like a cocaine addict. They can't see that they have a problem. They don't want help. They're ignorant to their destitute state and what's happened to their body after years' worth of addiction. And his point in all of this is that he's exposing before their eyes the extent of the calamity that's, that's before them, and he's indicting several of these groups, perhaps exhaustively or perhaps as mere symbols of just how widespread the corruption in, Israel has be, in Judah has become at this point. Just how perverse their worship life had become. So he's essentially saying, are you blind? Are you stupid? Do you see what's going on around you? Wake up and smell the coffee. And as he does so, he speaks of this locust plague as both a collective memory that they all have experienced, and yet as though it's still something that's ongoing. And why does he do this? Well, Joel's implication is that they should remember this for generations and generations to come because if you do not pass on this devastation and the history of what has happened, far worse will come upon you. And this prefigures then the day of the Lord that has a primary theme in the book of Joel. The day of the Lord being that great and cataclysmic event where God overthrows his enemy, gathers his people on Mount Sinai and executes great judgment against the wicked in all the land. So in these first 12 verses, he's indicating that this is a day of the Lord-like event. It portrays itself in that way, and God will bring justice and judgment upon the wicked in his own house before he goes out against the nations. Now, what's interesting in all of this, especially in the beginning, is that in Exodus we see that Israel is called to remember, remember the way that they were delivered. That their deliverance would be what was the collective memory of the people. It almost seems as if Joel is portraying, that didn't work. Clearly, remembering how good God is to you hasn't been, uh, uh, merely how good ha- God has been to you hasn't worked. It hasn't done the job. So now I think you should remember and, and call to mind just how great a devastation was brought upon you. And that worse is potentially coming if you fail to heed and recognize what's happening under your noses. Now, whether or not it's an army that's described here as this, uh, this invasion of locusts, or whether or not it's locusts itself, it does not really matter. Ultimately, they both point to the same thing. And the imagery for both an army and for locusts is the same. To hear of a coming, invading locust swarm is the same thing as conveying an army on the horizon. Ultimately, both of them leave behind nothing but destruction. An invading army does what? They gotta have, they gotta eat something. So they pillage the fields. 
They cut down the, the wood for fire and, and for other supplies. There's nothing left behind in the wake of an invading army. So it's imperative, the point is this, it's imperative that the people recognize what is going on before them in this cataclysmic event. And so Joel has called them all to remember in their collective memory as a nation. And then he moves cyclically through these three groups to indict them either as key points in their failures or to have, uh, which have then brought this judgment down upon them or as the primary culprits of this cataclysmic event. In other words, it's either your representatives of what's been going on or you are the key players who have caused this and brought this upon yourselves. And as he does so, he highlights the extent of this devastating plague and what that devastation uh, has caused and how it leads to the unraveling of their entire world order and how their sustainability of life is just gone. Now, standing behind this whole text is Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want to highlight just a few things there. Uh, If you'd like to follow along with me, you may. Deuteronomy chapter 28. We'll start in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be in the city and cursed you shall be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your fruit, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in, in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off of the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Then he goes on in verse 38. You you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for the oil shall drop off. All of these things, in verse 45, it says, shall come upon you because you disobeyed my covenant. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Now this being one excerpt carries through onto chapter 30. The point of chapter 28 is this. As insofar as it relates to this text. This was prophesied in the days of old. Was it not? That if we were faithless, the locusts would come upon us and that we would have nothing to harvest. Why don't we recognize, Joel is, is saying to them, why don't you recognize that these are the curses of the covenant that are coming upon you? That God is sovereign and by a single word it would all be taken away. And the hope held out to them implicitly as, as, the, as they would know is conveyed in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy connected with this same section in chapter 28. There God says, and when all of these things come upon you, 
the blessings and the curses which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord, he will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. So this great calamity for the people of Israel is known not to be the end of the story. It's a call to repentance, a demand to repentance, a demand to open your eyes, to get to action. And that's the primary movement, I think, of what Joel is trying to do in laying this out before their eyes. And he'll move into the repentance next week. But this week, he is really trying to shock them by the reality of the devastation that has been laid out upon their land. So what does this mean? What's the significance of the text? For them, what's it mean for us? Well, this isn't just a thick cloud of locusts. It teaches them that the Lord is not only God, but the faithful God who covenanted with Abraham. That despite in Deuteronomy 28, the curses that he would bring upon them for their faithlessness, he would be a faithful God to the covenant made with Abraham. It also teaches us that he sends a faithful messenger as an unveiler to these faithless people to open eyes. How gracious it is of God to send Joel to these people for their wickedness who are so blind they don't even know that what's happening to them is judgment from God for their wickedness. And it's also serving as a stern warning. Turn or else sovereign judgment of God will come upon you in a far worse manner. Later, we'll see the way that that judgment comes upon the nations and the way that Israel repents. But in the meantime, God must begin to winnow or purify his own house for their iniquity and pour out judgment upon them to purify his home. But this week, before getting into the repentance, I think we need to feel the weight and the reality of this, that this portion of the text offers. This has a message of its own. The mere fact that God sends Joel to open their eyes is grace and is an example of his faithfulness and mercy as God. Yeah, this isn't just a cloud of locust. It's my promised judgment. Now remember, now remember my judgment, otherwise more will come. Judgment intended to draw them back to himself. Judgment which was always portrayed as not the end of the story, but as a means to bring Israel to repentance, to call them to be faithful. And remember that I am God alone. I'm in control. The reality that Joel's name announces from the opening of the book. Yahweh is the Lord of the nations. He brings disasters and he brings blessings. He might not be the God that we want, He might not be the God that we imagine. He might not be the God that we think we need. But he is the God who is. He is loving. He is kind. He is holy and he is gracious. He calls nations to existence and he brings them to destruction but with a word. 
That's what he's teaching Israel. Well, what about in the New Testament? We see Joel really recaptured in the ministry of Christ who himself operates as the unveiler of the truth and as the one who does the signs and wonders and pronounces the judgment himself. He commands the seas and the storms to quiet. He feeds the thousands. He raises, he, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He pronounces the pending judgment upon the Jews, a, a, a judgment which ultimately materializes. Why? Because they didn't recognize what was right under their nose. The one foretold in the Old Testament, just as the judgment was foretold in Deuteronomy 28. So the message was, he decides and wonders before it's too late and while you still can. But what about for the Christian church today? What's this mean for us? Well, I think first we can be encouraged. I think we can genuinely be encouraged by the fact that this kind of devastation is something that we avert because we are gathered and will be gathered to the Mount of Zion for the Holy Assembly where God keeps his people safe. We are protected on God's holy mountain. We will never face this kind of judgment. Moreover, and without going into Joel 2, where he prophesies the outpouring of the Spirit, that text is its own text. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it yet. But we can be thankful that God, by his Spirit, opens our eyes to our sins as members of the covenant, the new covenant, graciously giving us eyes to see our sins. It is grace that he gives us eyes to see his powerful outworking history. It is grace that we can recognize the, the way that he is working and heed his law and turn from our sin. And much more than this, in Revelation chapter 9, it presents to us the torment of those who serve Satan between for Christ's first advent and his second coming. And what it presents to us is a limited and yet spiritual torture for those who reject Christ. And it presents it in the imagery of locusts with stingers. So what's worse than locust swarms that destroy the land? Locust swarms that sting you. That cause you spiritual torment. That leave you in utter despair and disarray. So as that great day of the Lord is coming and constantly arriving until it reaches us in its full manifestation, we are gathered in safety on Zion, even in this age where God is still Lord and his king sits enthroned on Zion. And we are thereby united to Christ by faith in safety. Now there are a lot of things to worry about in life. A lot of things that we're prone to worry about in life. A lot of things that our hearts are troubled by in life. We can be thankful that he gives us eyes to see our own callousness, to see our own sin, that he gives us his law to convict us, that this locust swarm or that spiritual torment is not one of them. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
that God does not leave us to ourselves or to our blindness, but by his law he calls us to repentance, by his good word he assures us of his promise, and by his bread and wine he feeds our faith. Bread and wine which the new covenant community will never be cut off from. Bread and wine which perpetually sustains us week in and week out to lay hold of Christ by faith as the only ground of our deliverance from great judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise that we are those whom you have called out of darkness into your marvelous light. That we have nothing to fear that there is no pestilence or, or, or locust plague or tribulation that will ever come upon us, but that we are safe with Christ in Zion. Give us hearts of joy. Encourage us, Father. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.